0: Do you think it's love? How can you tell?
1: When you start to hope, then comes the danger. You begin to think that love is like song lyrics, and then you're in trouble.
0: I'm Meg Wallitzer, and on this week's Selected Shorts, we'll hear stories about figuring it out, performed by Maya Dillon and Jennifer Ikeda. Stay with us. I'm Meg Wallitzer, and you're listening to Selected Shorts, where our greatest actors transport us through the magic of fiction, one short story at a time. On this particular show, love stories, or maybe not. How do we actually know when it's love? It's not like there's a definitive test. And what if it's not quite love, but maybe as good as it gets? Our two stories delve into this tricky and traditional subject— In one, a woman is baffled by her attraction to a modern-day caveman. She can't seem to get enough of what he doesn't have to offer. And in the other, a widowed mother starts dating again. Zadie Smith has described writing about a character who rummages in their purse for something because, as she writes, I was too lazy and thoughtless and unawake to separate purse from its old persistent friend rummage. The same pitfalls await when you write about love. You might reflexively say that someone's heart flutters or skips a beat, but that's not going to do what you want. I think you have to try to get to the sensations to what feels true for these people that you've created. Just as romantic partners have to find fresh and persuasive ways of expressing their feelings, writers have to do the same thing for their characters. Our first story is Pam Houston's playful but edgy How to Talk to a Hunter. An unnamed narrator who refers to herself as you finds herself in the cabin of an unnamed hunter. He covers her with a moose hide and is almost certainly cheating on her, but is seemingly irresistible. You'd expect this sly take on love from a writer whose best-known work is the collection Cowboys Are My Weakness. She's also written a memoir, Deep Creek, Finding Hope in the High Country, and two novels, Contents May Have Shifted, and Sighthound, among other works. In How to Talk to a Hunter... Houston has created a provocative, unreliable narrator who is beautifully rendered by our friend and longtime reader, Maya Dillon. Dillon's theater credits include Crimes of the Heart and Three Sisters and Gods and Generals, among other shows. Here she is to tell all.
2: How to talk to a hunter. When he says skins or blankets... It will take you a moment to realize that he's asking which you want to sleep under. And in your hesitation, he'll decide that he wants to see your skin wrapped in the big black moose hide. He carried it, he'll say, soaking wet and heavier than a dead man across the tundra for two, was it days, hours, or weeks? But the payoff now will be to see it fall across one of your white breasts. It's December. It's December. And your skin is never really warm So you will pull the bulk of it around you and pose for him Pose for his camera without having to narrate this moose's death You will spend every night in this man's bed Without asking yourself why he listens to Top 40 Country Why he donated money to the Republican Party (laughs) Why he won't play back his messages while you are there You are there so often, the messages pile up. (laughs) Once you noticed the bright green counter reading as high as 15. (laughs) He will have lured you here out of a careful independence you spent months cultivating, though it will finally be winter, the dwindling daylight, and the threat of Christmas that makes you give in. Spending nights with this man means suffering the long face of your sheepdog, who likes to sleep on your bed, who worries when you don't come home. But the hunter's house is so much warmer than yours, and he'll give you a key, and just like a woman, you'll think that means something. (laughs) It will snow hard for 13 straight days. Then it will really get cold. When it is 60 below, there will be no wind and no clouds, just still air and cold sunshine. The sun on the windows will lure you out of bed, but he'll pull you back under. The next two hours he'll devote to your body. With his hands, with his tongue, he'll express what will seem to you like the most eternal of loves. Like the house key, this is just another kind of lie. (laughs) Even in bed, especially in bed, You and he cannot speak the same language. The machine will answer the incoming calls. From under an ocean of passion and hide and hair, you'll hear a woman's muffled voice between the beeps. Your best female friend will say, So what did you think, that a man who sleeps under a dead moose is capable of commitment? This is what you learned in college. A man desires the satisfaction of his desire. A woman desires the condition of desiring. The hunter will talk about spring in Hawaii, summer in Alaska. The man who says he was always better at math will form the sentences so carefully it will be impossible to tell if you were included in these plans. When he asks you if you would like to open a small guest ranch way out in the country, understand that this is a rhetorical question. (laughs) Label these conversations future perfect, but don't expect the present to catch up with them. Spring is an inconceivable distance from the December days that just keep getting shorter and gray. He'll ask you if you've ever shot anything, if you'd like to, if you ever thought about teaching your dog to retrieve, your dog will like him too much. We'll drop the stick at his feet every time. We'll roll over and let the hunter scratch his belly. One day, he'll leave you sleeping to go split wood or get the mail, and his phone will ring again. You'll sit very still while a woman who calls herself something like Patty Coyote (laughs) leaves a message on his machine. She's leaving work, she'll say, and the last thing she wanted to hear was the sound of his beautiful voice. Maybe she'll talk only in rhyme. Maybe the counter will change to 16. You'll look a question at the mule deer on the wall, and the dark spots on either side of his mouth will tell you He shares more with this hunter than you ever will. One night, drunk, the hunter told you he was sorry for taking that deer, that every now and then there's an animal that isn't meant to be taken, and he should have known that deer was one. Your best male friend will say, no one who needs to call herself Patty Coyote can hold a candle to you, but why not let him sleep alone a few nights just to make sure? The hunter will fill your freezer with elk burger, venison sausage, organic potatoes, fresh pecans. He'll tell you to wear your seatbelt, to dress warmly, to drive safely. He'll say you are always on his mind, that you're the best thing that's ever happened to him, that you make him glad that he's a man. Tell him it don't come easy. Tell him freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose. These are the things you'll know without asking. The coyote woman wears her hair in braids. She uses words like, howdy. She's man enough to shoot a deer. A week before Christmas, you'll rent It's a Wonderful Life and watch it together, curled on your couch, faces touching. Then you'll bring up the word monogamy. He'll tell you how badly he was hurt by your predecessor. He'll tell you he couldn't be happier spending every night with you. He'll say there's just a few questions he doesn't have the answers for. He'll say he's just scared and confused. Of course, this isn't exactly what he means. Tell him you understand. Tell him you're scared too. Tell him to take all the time he needs. Know that you could never shoot an animal And be glad of it Your best female friend will say You didn't tell him you loved him, did you? Don't even tell her the truth If you do, you'll have to tell her he said this I feel exactly the same way (laughs) Your best male friend will say Didn't you know what would happen when you said the word commitment? But that isn't the word you said. He'll say, commitment, monogamy, it all means just one thing. The coyote woman will come from Montana with the heavier snows. The hunter will call you on the day of the solstice to say he has a friend in town and can't see you. He'll leave you hanging your Christmas lights He'll give new meaning to the phrase Longest night of the year The man who has said he's not so good with words Will manage to say eight things about his friend Without using a gender-determining pronoun (laughs) Get out of the house quickly Call the most understanding person you know That will let you sleep in his bed Your best female friend will say So what did you think? That he was capable of living outside his gender? When you get home in the morning, there's a candy tin on your pillow Santa, obese and grotesque, fondles two small children on the lid (laughs) The card will say something like, from your not-so-secret admirer Open it. Examine each carefully made truffle Feed them, one at a time, to the dog (laughs) Call the hunter's machine Tell him you don't speak chocolate Your best female friend will say At this point, what is it about him that you could possibly find appealing? Your best male friend will say Can't you understand that this is a good sign? Can't you understand that this proves how deep he's in with you? Hug your best male friend Give him the truffles the dog wouldn't eat (laughs) Of course, the weather will cooperate with the coyote woman The highways will close She will stay another night He'll tell her he's going to work So he can come and see you He'll even leave her your number And write me at work On the yellow pad of paper by his phone Although you shouldn't, you'll have to be there. It will be you and your nauseous dog and your half-trimmed tree, all waiting for him like a series of questions. (laughs) This is what you learned in graduate school. In every assumption is contained the possibility of its opposite. In your kitchen, he'll hug you like you both might die there. Sniff him for Coyote, don't hug him back. (laughs) He will say whatever he needs to to win. He'll say, it's just an old friend. He'll say the visit was all the friend's idea. He'll say, the night away from you has given him time to think about how much you mean to him. Realize that nothing short of sleeping alone will ever make him realize how much you mean to him. He'll say that if you can just be a little patient, some good will come out of this for the two of you, after all. He still won't use a gender-specific pronoun. Put your head in your hands. Think about what it means to be patient. Think about the beautiful, smart, strong, clever woman you thought he saw when he looked at you. Pull on your hair, rock your body back and forth. Don't cry. He'll say that after holding you, it doesn't feel right holding anyone else. For holding, substitute fucking. (laughs) Then take it as a compliment. (laughs) He will get frustrated and rise to leave. He may or may not be bluffing, stall for time. Ask a question he can't immediately answer Tell him you want to make love on the floor When he tells you your body is beautiful Say, I feel exactly the same way (laughs) Don't under any circumstances stand in front of the door Your best female friend will say They lie to us, they cheat on us, and we love them more for it She'll say, it's our fault, we raise them to be like that Tell her, it can't be your fault. You've never raised anything but dogs. (laughs) The hunter will say, it's late, and he has to go home to sleep. He'll emphasize the last word in the sentence. Give him one kiss that he'll remember while he's fucking the coyote woman. (laughs) Give him one kiss that ought to make him cry if he's capable of it, but don't notice when he does. Tell him to have a good night. Your best male friend will say, we all do it. We can't help it. We're self-destructive. It's the old bad boy routine. You have a male dog, don't you? (laughs) The next day, the sun will be out, and the coyote woman will leave. Think about how easy it must be for the coyote woman and a man who listens to Top 40 Country. The Coyote Woman would never use a word like monogamy. The Coyote Woman will stay gentle on his mind. If you can, let him sleep alone for at least one night. If you can't, invite him over to finish trimming your Christmas tree. When he asks you how you are, tell him you think it's a good idea to keep your sense of humor during the holidays. Plan to be breezy and aloof and full of interesting anecdotes about all the other men you've ever known. (laughs) Plan to be hotter than ever before in bed and a little cold out of it. Remember that necessity is the mother of invention. Be flexible. First, he will find the faulty bulb that's been keeping all the others from lighting. He will explain in great detail the most elementary electrical principles you will take turns placing the ornaments you and other men he and other women have spent years carefully choosing under the circumstances try to let this be a comforting thought he will thin the clusters of tinsel you put on the tree he'll say something ambiguous like next year you should string popcorn and cranberries finally his arm will stretch just high enough to place the angel on the top of the tree Your best female friend will say, why can't you ever fall in love with a man who will be your friend? Your best male friend will say, you ought to know this by now. Men always cheat on the best women. This is what you learned in the pop psychology book. Love means letting go of fear. (laughs) Play Willie Nelson's Pretty Paper. He'll ask you to dance. And before you can answer, he'll be spinning you around your wood stove. He'll be humming in your ear. Before the song ends, he'll be taking off your clothes, setting you lightly under the tree, hovering above you with tinsel in his hair. Through the spread of the branches, the all-white lights you insisted on will shudder and blur, outlining the ornaments he brought, a pheasant a snow goose, a deer. <laughs> the record will end. Above the crackle of the wood stove and the rasp of the hunter's breathing, you'll hear one long, low howl break the quiet of the frozen night. Your dog, chained and lonely and cold. You'll wonder if he knows enough to stay in his doghouse. You'll wonder if he knows that the nights are getting shorter now. Thank you.
0: Maya Dillon performed How to Talk to a Hunter by Pam Houston. I'm Meg Wallitzer. Well, that story's a cautionary tale if I ever heard one. When we return, an odd couple. You're listening to Selected Shorts, recorded live in performance at Symphony Space in New York City and at other venues nationwide. Welcome back to Selected Shorts. I'm Meg Wallitzer. Did you know Selected Shorts hosts its own short story contest? Every year, one of your favorite writers chooses a lucky winner, and the prizes are, I am in no way biased, amazing. $1,000, publication on electric literature, an actor performing your story at the closing night of Selected Shorts, and a free writing class with Gotham Writers Workshop. This year's judge is Anthony Doerr, author of Cloud Cuckoo Land, All the Light We Cannot See, and more. Visit SelectedShorts.org to learn more and submit by March 10, 2023 for your chance to win. We're looking at love and imperfect relationships on this show. Maybe not quite love, more like lust or longing or loneliness, all the L words. The sensations that make us feel that we want and might actually have found love. This subtle shading of emotion is at the heart of Lisa Coe's Pat and Sam. And you can't see this on the radio, but it's not and, as in you and me. It's the plus sign, as in a mathematical linking of two integers. In this case, a widow and a rootless man find one another by accident, and we follow their erratic courtship. Coe has received real acclaim for her believable and unsettling fiction, She is the author of The Leavers, which was a 2017 National Book Award for Fiction finalist and won the 2016 Penn Bellwether Prize for Socially Engaged Fiction. Her work was selected for Best American Short Stories 2016. Our reader for Pat and Sam is Jennifer Ikeda, known for her television work on series such as Elementary and Blindspot. She's also an award-winning audiobook reader and puts those talents to work beautifully in Pat and Sam, which she recorded at home, especially for you.
1: Pat and Sam One Before the party, Pat spent an hour crying in her bedroom, her and Harry's room, their old room, and used up a stick of concealer trying to hide the crinkled half-moons under her eyes. She left the girls with the neighbors. She put on lipstick. At the party, she asked Sam Kwan for a light. It was a cold October night in 1974. They smoked back then. Everybody did. This was before Pat's two children became Sam's and before there were three children, before they grounded the oldest when Pat found a pack of Newports in her room. By then, they would have forgotten their own youth, or rather, they would hold their children to higher standards. The children would be confident and happy. They'd feel entitled to happiness, and for that, Pat and Sam would resent them. Pat told Sam she used to live in the city, but now she lived in Jersey. Some friends had invited her to the party, so she'd driven out to her old neighborhood in Queens. "'Where I live,' she said. "'It's like the country, but there's a train to the city.'" Sam told Pat he lived in Brooklyn and never went to New Jersey. It must be nice to have trees and grass. The apartment was a dump, the room too hot and crowded, the moss green carpet balding in patches like a neglected lawn. To the right of the sunken couch was a folding table with a paper plate of pretzel crumbs, a six-pack of beer, and a plastic jug of deli gin. What's the guy's name that lives here? Pat asked in Cantonese. Sam recognized the words and said, I have no idea my friend Ben invited me. Sam's laugh was a joyful bark, and Pat thought she saw, through his thick eyeglasses, the glint of a troublemaker. The music surged. Annabelle Uy leapt off the couch and started shaking her hips, rear end plump and wide like a bakery bun. Dance, Pat! Dance! Annabelle shouted, pointing to Pat, and Pat looked at Sam and he shrugged. Why not? Even if she didn't care that much about dancing, Sam's willingness to do so made him more appealing. They danced. Not terribly, but not particularly well. Their shoulders remained hunched, feet rooted to the floor. Their arms swung slowly, but they moved closer to one another. The next day, Pat's mother called and said, I don't know how you'd do it, all alone in that big house with two little children, all alone and nobody to help you. I don't see why you can't move back to Chicago already. All right, Ma, Pat said. I met someone. Who? He's Chinese. We're going out next Saturday. Oh? He has a good job, and he knows all about the kids and Harry. And he's still talking to you? There must be something wrong with him. Nothing's wrong with him. But he'll want his own house. He likes New Jersey. He thinks it's nice. Her mother made a pleased, cooing sound. 2. He had never been with a woman longer than four months, and that was years ago in Hong Kong, with a girl named Helen, whose voice could peel the skin off babies. Sam was just her type, locked up, quiet, angry, a kid who had lived in ten different homes after his father left and his mother went to find work in Singapore. In Hong Kong, he had wanted to be a musician. He put on his one good outfit and went to the Sunday afternoon tea dances when he could afford it, screamed and danced to the lotus, belting out, "'I'll be waiting, I'll be waiting, I'll be waiting,' the chorus pressing into him like a thumb against a vein. He could strum a guitar and keep a beat, but that's as far as his music dreams went. High school teachers said engineering was the way to get a student visa, so he put engineering on his application and Nebraska gave him a full scholarship. After four long years in Omaha, he boarded a bus for New York, Watched the flat fields of the Midwest bump by as if they were unspooling toilet paper ready to flush down the drain. New York was a platter of girls towering blondes with custard tits, smooth skinned babes with sultry lips. When Sam talked, it felt like his words were crisscrossing in the air, scrambled before they landed. Things that sounded fine in his mind left his mouth and entered women's ears in some garbled syntax. Nice dress, he said, and they looked at him like he'd groped them on the subway. Buy you a drink? They'd recoil like he'd spit in theirs. He went to record stores and jazz clubs and sat alone in the back. What they saw? A scrawny Chinese guy, barely any meat on his bones. Five foot seven on a good day, coke bottle glasses, cheap clothes, an underfed accountant loser brother. They saw a man who couldn't dance. They heard a man who couldn't sing. But in his leaky, water-balloon heart, Sam could sing and dance. In the apartment he shared with a rotating cast of roommates, he locked the door to his room and played records on his turntable, James Brown and Maceo Parker, Sly Stone, It felt like being unraveled. I lost someone, my love. Someone who's greater than the stars above. I want to hear you scream. He hadn't lost a love like that. His father, that was a loss, but not of a real person, only the idea of father. Yet there was always a feeling of incompleteness, a reaching for, a wanting of some thread left unstitched, the missing chunk. Late at night in his room, he dreamt of meeting a woman who would understand all of that, who would be able to listen to music and feel the notes crawl up her spine, who would sing along, who would dance with him, who would leave him alone. His buddy Ben lived with a girl named Lily in a studio apartment in Chinatown that smelled like overcooked eggs, both of them skinny enough that they'd sometimes share clothes. The idea of living with a girl seemed as incomparable to Sam as waking up on the moon. Shacking up, Ben called it. He cheated on Lily with a college girl who wore matching dresses, shoes, and panties, and a rich juksing with a Pomeranian that slept in her bed and woke him up by licking his toes. We're too young to be tied down, Ben told Sam, and Sam pictured himself splayed out on his back, limbs spread hands and feet tied snugly to four posts in the ground, Helen from Hong Kong triple-knotting the ropes. Pat was a woman with very little curve to her, smooth hips and flat ass, dark hair permed into a frizzy halo. Behind rounded red frames, her eyes were wet and giant, her nose and mouth miniature. She had the look of a doll owl, Doll owl, Sam thought, turning the words around in his mouth. Fire me up? Those were the first words she said to him. The sentence he would later see as the spark. Or, on worse days, the culprit. She wanted a light. She wanted to be fired up. Three. On the night of her and Sam's first official date, Pat had already spoken on the phone to her mother and Annabelle Uy. Make sure you look good for once, her mother said. It wouldn't kill you to put on a little makeup and wear a dress. Wear heels because you're such a little shrimp, but not too high heels. Remember, you don't want to be taller than the man. You haven't gained any weight, have you? Annabelle said... I asked Jack Eng, who asked Ben Chan, who said that Sam was quiet but a stand-up guy. But really, you gotta watch out for those quiet ones. He must like you if he's going all the way out to New Jersey. Watch out! Pat was dressed in red slacks and a cream-colored V-neck blouse, curls sprayed tight, mascara and eyeliner carefully applied. Sam was arriving on the 6 o'clock train. Lynette and Cynthia were wearing corduroys and turtlenecks, hair pulled into long pigtails. The mulligans up the block were out of town, the Antonicelli's already had plans for the night, and Pat didn't know anyone else in Warwick, so she told the girls they were going out for dinner with a friend. When Sam asked her out, she thought they could see each other just this one time, and then she'd never have to tell him about Harry and the girls. "'Can we have pizza?' "'Cynthia asked. "'We'll see,' said Pat. "'Behave yourselves. We're the guests.' "'At Romeo's, they got looks. "'The barn-shaped pizzeria was noisy, "'the air heavy with grease. "'There were a few empty tables, "'but the waitress told Sam and Pat to wait, "'and they stood in a small corner space by the door, "'the girls droopy and shivering "'with their backs pressed against a cigarette machine.' Each time the door opened, it brought in more cold air. Family after family came in, spoke to the waitress, waited until their names were called, and sat down. Sam and Pat watched as those families flipped through menus and placed orders. When the waitress brought out a pepperoni pie and a pitcher of soda, Cynthia tugged at Pat's coat and said, Why aren't we eating yet? Twenty minutes had passed and her stomach was growling. Sam's face was creased and tight. He shook his head and pushed his way to the waitress. Why are we still waiting? He pointed to Cynthia and Lynette. Children are waiting! It sounded like he was shouting. The waitress had a nose like a soft banana, a small pouch of fat on her otherwise thin face. She was taller than Sam and as he shouted at her, she took a step back. We haven't been seated. You seated those families first, and they came in after us. Sam pointed to the family eating the pepperoni pie, then back at the waitress, jabbing a finger. The waitress looked at him as if he was speaking in another language. Pardon me? Pat wanted Sam to punch the waitress. She wanted to punch the waitress herself. Sam stood there, glaring, his hands shoved into his coat pockets. Say something, Pat whispered. Sam said nothing. She felt relieved that he didn't make a scene. How would she have explained it to the girls? Maybe they had imagined everything. Maybe there really weren't any tables available. Maybe all the families that came in after them were close relatives of the waitress, and they were just being paranoid. Let's go, Sam said. It was a command, a bark. Without looking back, he kicked the door open and walked out. Pat waited to see if he'd return or open the door for her, but he didn't. She took the girl's hands and pushed the door open herself. Sam stood in the parking lot with his fists balled. Those fuckers. Don't yell. You're scaring the girls. They think they can walk all over us. Pat took out her car keys and wondered if she could ever return to Romeo's. They're not all that bad. He took out a pack of cigarettes. Want one? I don't smoke around the girls. Sam put the pack back into his pocket. The girls climbed into the back seat and stared at him. Pat wanted to give them a hug. Cynthia said, I'm hungry. 4. Trees were different in New Jersey, bigger, more colorful. The train had rolled past houses with single car garages, three block downtowns, stores with awnings, even an official town clock. Pat had said on the phone to look out for the green beetle, and he spotted it when he got off in Warwick, the only car in the lonely parking lot with its lights on. Two little girls sat in the back seat, watching him. "'These are my daughters, Lynette and Cynthia. Say hello to Sam.' "'Hello,' the children chorused. Sam's brain was flipping through the possibilities. Who were these children? Was this a setup? Pat didn't wear a wedding ring. She had agreed to the date. Should he get out of the car before her husband returned and kicked his ass all the way back to Brooklyn?' She put her hand on top of his. It was small and warm, clammy with sweat. I'm sorry I didn't say anything earlier. I didn't know how. My husband Harry, well, my ex-husband, he passed away. I'm so sorry. The girls were silent. It was almost a year ago. Only? Almost? I'm sorry. Pat clapped her hands together and turned on the ignition. I couldn't get a sitter for tonight, she said in Cantonese. Sam looked at her, then towards the back seat. But they don't understand, Pat said. Their father was Juxing, Chinese, but born in America. Oh? We met in Queens. Oh. Are we going for pizza? One of the girls asked. Do you like pizza? I love pizza, Sam said, switching back to English, even though eating cheese gave him stomach cramps. At Romeo's, he wished they were in the city, where there were other Chinese, and later he would feel that he had backed down too easily, that he should have gone back inside and let the waitress know they couldn't mess with him. He wondered if, in not doing so, he had let Pat down. Pat drove them to another pizzeria, and they ordered a pie to go, brought it back to the house, and ate it at the kitchen table. The girls drank sodas, Pat and Sam beers. The scene at Romeo's receded somewhat. Sam was surprised at how large the house was on the inside. The ceilings were tall, and the fluffy shag carpet clean and warm. The kitchen was twice the size of his rented room, and the windows faced a tree-filled backyard. He walked around the living room full of hanging plants and children's toys and looked at framed photos on the fireplace mantle. The Juxing husband was in some of them, and Sam noted that he wasn't too tall, although he was good-looking, with hard, chiseled features and wiry hair. The girls took after him. There was a picture of Pat and the Juxing husband smiling in front of a small Christmas tree, strung with so much tinsel it was as if the tree had metallic hair. They wore matching red plaid pants. Had this been the Juxing husband's last Christmas? He didn't look sick. Sam looked at his deceased competition. For now he had put himself into the running, and Pat began to take on a new shape that of a steely, vulnerable survivor. Someone who'd been wanted before. Then she was standing next to him. I'm sorry, she said. This isn't much of a date. Sam wanted to scoop her into his chest. It's okay. He reached over and put an arm around her shoulders, patting her at regular intervals. His name was Harry, she said. And he died in a car accident. 5. Sam washed the dishes as Pat put the girls to bed. In the bathroom mirror, dark circles beneath her eyes were emerging like storm clouds, and she decided he had only asked her out because he was being kind. She brushed her tongue with her toothbrush to scrub off the cheese taste and walked downstairs. She would drop Sam off at the train station and go to sleep and wake up at 6.30, get the girls off to Warwick Elementary and get herself to the lawyer's office on Route 17 where she worked as a paralegal, two exits south of where Harry had died, and pick up the girls from school, fix dinner, mediate when Cynthia pinched Lynette and Lynette cried— plant them in front of the television, hug them when they said they missed Daddy, and fall asleep in her work clothes at nine o'clock. She would think again about selling the house and moving back to Queens. The kitchen was empty and the back door open. Sam was in the middle of the yard, looking at the sky. The shadows lent him solidity. His zip-up jacket was old and cheap-looking, but it gave him the appearance of heft. For a moment, she wondered who this man was and what he was doing in her yard. Pat walked towards him, the leaves damp beneath her boots. She would have to rake them. She had never raked leaves in her life. I'm smelling the sky, he said. It smells good, the fresh air. Maybe you're not a city type after all. Maybe you belong in New Jersey. Maybe, he said. And as they studied each other through their glasses, he leaned down an inch, she up an inch, and they made out like teenagers. He felt less flimsy than he looked, his hands gripping her waist, and when her mouth opened and closed, she was surprised by how promptly she was turned on, how acutely she wanted more. 6. When you start to hope, then comes the danger. You begin to think that love is like song lyrics, and then you're in trouble. He listened to too much music, and he wanted too much. A deep gnawing, a terrible hunger, an uppercut to the heart. He pictured himself standing at Pat's doorway, holding flowers in one hand and a bundle of records in the other, They could save one another from all the lonely days after lonely days. He went to work at the drafting job he hated, marked up the help-wanted ads, and slept fitfully in his room, thinking of dark backyards and big trees. In Pat's backyard, he had seen stars, shining so hard it was as if they were vibrating, quivering from the effort of producing all that light. Riding the subway into Manhattan... Sam imagined being a father. He had no idea how to deal with children, never mind girls, the girls of the woman he was dating and a dead man. Walking through Midtown, he wondered if he was ready for the challenge. Was he being challenged? And his walk grew faster and stronger. Hadn't he traveled across the world by himself? If the juxing husband could be a father, he could. In New Jersey, there were no Chinese, but the air was so clean, not like Omaha, where open space was like strangling. They fell into a routine. Pat picked him up at the train station on Sundays. Sam brought Lynette and Cynthia coloring books and asked them questions about their favorite TV shows. Pat told him about the accident, and Sam said nothing because it scared him. He was simply listening to her. Being supportive. He wondered if he could be satisfied being her second choice, if the Juxing husband would have gone back inside the pizzeria, yet sometimes he thought that being second was better than not being a choice at all. It would be easier if she didn't have kids. Pat had yet to visit him in Brooklyn, and he didn't want to ask her, knowing it would be hard with the girls but he wanted her to spend the night with him to prove she was interested. I think you should come stay with me one night, he said, after almost two months of Sunday visits. I really think you need to. Seven. So, did you make it with him yet? What? Annabelle? Did you or didn't you? No. Then Pat added, Not yet. Come on, said Annabelle. There's no need to play the prude. He's come by six Sundays in a row, Pat said. Annabelle laughed. Now it's serious. Pat thought of the way her heart beat after she and Sam made out in the yard each Sunday, how they took their glasses off and looked at each other as if they were seeing new people. He looked bare, slippery, different. Maybe I'm falling in love, she said. Annabelle screeched and dropped the phone. Her mother called and said, don't push him away. You can't be so picky at your age. Contrary to what her mother thought, Pat was still young, but she didn't feel young. Still, Sam would be content with not knowing all the details that came before him. He wouldn't ask. He was still coming into focus for her. The lens would adjust, and on some days she would see him shaping into the same type of man as Harry. Slim hips and swagger, all muscle, ready to fire. Harry and Pat had worked next door to one another in Queens. He did taxes. She did filing. It seemed like before she knew it, she had married him— given birth to two children, and moved out to New Jersey, envisioning life as a whimsical crapshoot, a leisurely canoe ride down a river on an endless summer afternoon, floating on a current that would take her wherever it pleased. She played along, believing that she didn't have much of a choice, but she had chosen Harry. She had chosen him hard. There had been boyfriends before, mild-mannered boys that Pat neither loved nor hated but they had judged her passiveness to be disinterest and eventually backed away. Only Harry had seen it for what it was, an invitation, a cracked door. She used to try to catch Harry in unguarded moments, look at him across the room as he ironed shirts in his boxer shorts, had to sit on her hands to stop herself from pushing herself into him. He had made her feel crazy and out of control, as if she'd wanted him until there was no want left in her. Whoever came next would get the crumbs. On other days, the lens would adjust and Sam's shape would recede, lines of his body redrawn into another man, the illusion of cockiness fine-tuned into a shape Pat couldn't yet read. The first time he saw her car in the daylight, he asked her about the dent in the fender. She explained that it was a new car. The old one had been wrecked in the accident. The dented fender was from Pat's own accident. After he died, I was so scared I couldn't drive on the highway. Then one day I took the car out and drove it into the pond in Warwick. Why? He asked. I don't know. Maybe because he died, I was safe. Superstitious, you know? They were sitting at the kitchen table, their feet rubbing against one another. Pat put her hand against her mouth. Her breath wet her palm. She wanted to rewind and snatch back everything she'd just revealed— Sam looked at her with confusion and pity. The minutes ticked by and he said nothing. He said nothing. Pat removed her feet from his. Finally, he said. Then what happened? The car was a little banged up, but I wasn't hurt. I told everyone it was an accident and they believed me. He put his arm around her, and she felt so relieved, she said, "'I can get a sitter for next weekend.'" At dinner in Manhattan, Chinatown, Pat ate quickly and greedily. Afterwards, as they walked to Sam's apartment, she felt like a schoolgirl swinging hands with her boy. She belonged here. She was in love. She was so lucky to feel this way twice." Don't be too proud, her mother used to tell her. A little proud is okay. Too much is not okay. All Pat wanted was a less busy heart. In Sam's apartment, the floorboards slanted dramatically to the right, and the tiny living room held only a television set on a plastic crate and several plastic chairs. She imagined picking up his dirty beer bottles and dishes every night after work. His room was similarly small and bare, a twin mattress lying resigned in the corner, the floor coated in so much dirt that Pat was afraid to take off her shoes. They sat on the mattress and kissed. Sam's mouth tasted like dinner. They kissed for a long time. He got up and pulled a record from a stack of albums in the corner, placed it on the turntable that sat on an overturned cardboard box And gently lowered the needle. The music began. It was strange music, some song she'd never heard before. It sounded like a man yelping, screaming words about losing someone. What do you think? Do you like it? Sam's glasses were off, his face expectant. I don't know, Pat said. It's so loud. So much screaming. He looked disappointed, so she said, Okay, then, let's dance. They got up and danced in the space between the mattress and the wall. Pat giggled at how silly the scene was, the loud music, the sad room. Sam didn't laugh back. His face was still and serious. No humor. What was so serious about this shrieking music anyway? What was the big deal? Eight. It was time to do it. It was over too soon. He was embarrassed. She didn't understand his music. She hated his apartment. He'd seen the way her mouth pinched when she saw his room. He hated her for that and he hated himself for caring that the Juxing husband had been able to buy her that huge house. Pat acted like she was too good for the city. Sam? She lay beside him, naked. He pulled the sheets over her, not wanting to see the paunch on her stomach, the floppy, ridiculous skin. Sam? Pat asked again. He felt like he was being drowned. Do you have a cigarette, Sam? Sam thought he was too young to be tied down. But that morning, Ben had called from a payphone in Lake Tahoe where he was on a skiing trip. We're moving to California, Ben announced. I asked Lily to marry me, and she said yes. Ben said it was time to make his real life start. And Sam said he hadn't realized that what he'd been living wasn't real life. When he put the phone down, he realized that his early days in New York were over. Nine. Pat exhaled smoke. The record player spun static. Sam was quiet, his hair sticking up in a cowlick. He curled away from her, breathing. Was he sleeping? We're only pretending to. You know, women sometimes take longer. She said it and knew she shouldn't have. It was only their first time. It could get better. She said his name again, and he said nothing. Outside, it was dark already. Pat heard a bus screech on the street. Footsteps and voices in the next room. Four roommates, all single men. She had to use the bathroom, but she was trapped here until the roommates left. The room was cold, and she missed her girls. There were nights, alone with them in the house, that she thought she could do this life solo. It wasn't so bad, just the three of them. On other nights... She felt like she was the only person left in the world, with two girls and a dead husband and nowhere to go. And she was so angry, she wanted to smash the walls with an axe, throw chairs through the windows. She dragged deeper on the cigarette, trying to outrun the sinking feeling. Her mother had said, "'I'm so happy. I'm so relieved.'" I'm so happy you met a nice man. Are you awake? Pat asked now, in a last effort, and Sam didn't respond. The space between them, imperceptible at first, became a sudden tear, threads popping from seams in one sure stroke. But he was nice enough, she thought. He was a nice man.
0: Jennifer Ikeda performed Pat and Sam by Lisa Coe. I'm Meg Wallitzer. As soon as the pizzeria in that story was described as being barn-shaped and smelling like grease, and there's also mention of a cigarette machine on the premises, I thought, no good is going to come of this evening. I don't know why, but I felt a heightened agitation for the two title characters— I guess it's always the specifics in stories that create a certain sensation in the reader. If details are put there by the writer basically as ornaments just to decorate a room without also creating a shift in what I like to think of as room temperature, they're probably not doing enough for the story. But if they add to the feeling, in the case of Pat and Sam, the uneasiness, maybe even dread, those details are doing their job. So, two stories about love, or the next best thing, whatever that may be, if you've got a quirky, not quite love story to share, let us know on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. I'm Meg Wallitzer. Thanks for joining me for Selected Shorts. Selected Shorts is produced by Jennifer Brennan. Our literary team is Matthew Love, Drew Richardson, and Vivienne Woodward. Our director of marketing is Mary Shimkin. Our radio producers are Jenny Falcon and Sarah Montague. The readings are recorded by Miles B. Smith. Our mix engineer for this episode was Jennifer Nolson. Our theme music is David Peterson's That's the Deal, performed by the Deerdorf Peterson Group. Selected Shorts is supported by the Dungannon Foundation, creator of the Ray Award for the Short Story. Support is also provided by the NYC COVID-19 Response and Impact Fund in the New York Community Trust, the Howard Gilman Foundation, the Schubert Foundation, the Sharina Endowment Fund, the Blanchette Hooker Rockefeller Fund, the Achilles and Bodman Foundation, the Henry Nias Foundation, the Consolidated Edison Company of New York, the Michael Tuck Foundation, the Vida Foundation, the Ax Houghton Foundation, the Lemberg Foundation, and the Grodzins Fund. Selected shorts is also made possible by the National Endowment for the Arts and with public funds from the New York State Council on the Arts, with the support of Governor Kathy Hochul and the New York State Legislature. Symphony Space thanks our generous supporters, including our board of directors, producer circle, and members who make our programs possible with their annual support. Selected Shorts is produced and distributed by Symphony Space.